This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Delancey. In more than a couple of my previous interviews, I spoke with writers who reflected on the relationship between art and politics. You may recall that in some of these conversations, I lamented the fact that aspects of art have become nearly indistinguishable from political activism. If you recognize my voice, you probably know my critiques already, and you know that I'm a former proponent of art activism turned into an anti-activist activist. My conversation today is then a very special one because my guest is not only a researcher, but an artist and an art activist himself. Greg Chillette is one of the key proponents and theorists of art activism and social practice. At the art school Social Practice Queens, which he runs with Chloe Bass, he has built many of the foundations on which today's art active engagement with politics is based. His recent book, The Art of Activism and the Activism of Art, gives an account of the history, success, and failures of political art practices since the 1960s and the development of its ideas to the present day. Gregor Scalette, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Pierre. Well, we're here in uh, my hotel room in London, and it's uh, September 10th, 12th? I'm, I'm actually forgetting. One of those days. You've uh, just 2022, the just in case anybody ever digs this up and wants to know what happened. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's a timestamp. And it's one of the very few interviews I've done in person. This is kind of a special moment, mm-hmm. Craig, partly because you are more one of the high priests of art and activism and art and social practice. So I'm very happy to be talking to you about your new book. Yes, Before my we... son. Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. Crick has just made a, made a sign of the cross. So, um, well, let's 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 get into a bit of you before we get into a book. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be quite important because, as you do declare yourself in a book, you are not only a theorist, you're also an educator and an art activist yourself. So, can I ask you to to lay the ground for for some of these yes. things? Uh, well, I always say that I'm an artist first because I mm-hmm. trained as an artist and I still produce art. In fact, I still produce art that is would be considered studio art. And mm-hmm. have exhibition some work in an exhibition in New York now. There's another one in New Mexico that's traveling, uh, and I like studio art a lot. And I'm going to kind of come around to your your point by saying the problem I have is 
I don't know where to show it. You know, <laughs> I feel uncomfortable in most of the kind of venues. Mm -hmm. Maybe you know, university venues is one thing, but it just feels like making that kind of work has always been really problematic because of all the reasons that you know we could discuss in terms of the nature of the art world, right? Ideologically, economically, commercially. So. I've also been an activist working in artist collectives and that began after I graduated from undergraduate in 1979 from the Cooper Union where I had studied with the artist Hans Hacke who's mm -hmm. well known for his contributions to conceptual art and institutional critique and political art. But I became involved with people like Lucy Lepard and Jerry Kearns and others and we actually created a group called Political Art Documentation Distribution, PAD mm -hmm. for short. We had this ambitious idea that we were going to support third world liberation struggles by being mm -hmm. artists. And, um, you know, we did a lot of things newspapers, we created an archive, uh, we had ongoing series of talks, we would do some protest work, create art for demonstrations. Maybe this is a good uh, snapshot of the, some of the paradoxes that I mm -hmm. present in my work is that the work that PAD created, this archive, is now in the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> Of all places, uh, you know, nothing against the MoMA per se, except that you know, uh, an intentionally subversive archive of art is in one of its main uh, institutional sort of uh, pillars, right? So uh, these are these are sort of the convolutions and complications that I discovered as I was an activist in the '90s. I worked with a group of people. We created Repo History, actually based on the movie Repo Man. The term. Which, which I'm aware of. I'm lucky enough not to have seen. Well, no, unfortunately, that is your homework. You have to watch it. Tell <laughs> me what you think. Um, it's a fantastic film, uh, a little bit, a little bit sort of, uh, you know, macho. Our idea was we would be the repo men and repo women of a sort of unknown or forgotten or uh, obscured histories. Mm -hmm. And so we literally created sort of like street signs. And this was a it was a small group of people in the working group, but then a large group producing the work about all kinds of histories from where a famous abortionist once had her headquarters before she was actually drummed out of doing abortion. It became illegal and she killed herself, Madame Rostel, to where the shoreline of Manhattan was because it's changed over the years mm -hmm. because of landfill, to where the Native American people had uh, you know, lodgings, to a famous strike. All these kinds of histories, and we literally put these signs up where they took place uh, in Manhattan. This was 1992, yeah. which was also the quincentennial of Christopher Columbus, quote, you know, discovering the new world, right? And so this was part of a kind of counter quincentennial anti celebration mm -hmm. that we actually ended up getting uh, legally getting the, the ability to put these signs up for one year. We started off as a guerrilla project and ended up. Uh, so that was repo history. And then more recently, I've been involved in Gulf Labor Coalition, where we've been protesting the building of the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi uh, because of the working conditions that uh, most of the migrant laborers, uh, uh, are, all of the migrant laborers really in that region are subjected to under the kafala system, where you can have your passport taken away and where you, know, you think you're going to be sending money home to your, your family in Pakistan or uh, Egypt, and in fact, uh, you, you, you are in debt, you know, thousands of dollars for the, just this sort of visa or the work visa. So uh, almost like, uh, you know, a, a form of slavery almost, right? In, and it's not just in Abu Dhabi, it's in the whole region. Yeah. We came to the Guggenheim and said, you know, if you're gonna build a facility that has to do with contemporary art, 
and in its Western conception of what that is, well, you need to build it under the conditions that you would expect in Europe, in the US, you know, et cetera. And, you know, they're very nice, good liberal people, Richard Armstrong, saying, you know, we, we agree with you, but, you know, it, it's, it's them, it's the Emirates, they're, they're the ones, right? And we said, oh, yeah, really, you're, you, you know, you're not getting anything out of this. And so we boycotted them, we created various uh, art projects around it, and ultimately even occupied the Guggenheim, both in New York and the one in uh, Venice during the Biennale. So those are the three major uh, art collectives that are part of it. And that's what I consider primarily the activist work. Although you pointed out I'm an educator and I also do work, I would say a kind of activism within the public uh, university system in New York as well. In, in your three examples, you've covered kind of the gamut of different types of art activism and also aspects of, it hist of its historical evolution. So you talked about the kind of activism that very outwardly aims to liberate third parties. You talked about the third world. These are your words a moment ago. And so as though artists in Manhattan had some kind of relationship and ability to redistribute resources, to, to, to do progressive politics, economically even, towards aspect, parts of the world which have never been to Manhattan. And you end in activism that that essentially talks to the art world, that the Gulf, Gulf Labour um, Coalition that you describe looks to arts institutions. To get into the book, we should think about how to historicize those developments. And you have this unenviable task in the book of having to decide where it is that art started being political. And that's, of course, impossible, because one could quite easily extend the argument that art has always been political, but that's really no use to any of us who want to figure out what might have happened during our lifetime and where it is that we might, might be learning from. But within your own trajectory, I think it's quite telling that you start the history in a book with the 1960s and the emergence of conceptualism, the um, importance of 1968 as the kind of moment where the political and the social and the creative really get together. So I want to ask you to maybe retell as briefly or as poignantly as you can aspects of this story and why you think that's a good moment through which to look at what art and activism might mean today. Yeah, it's true that the book begins really in the 60s and tries to move up right to the present. And it just ends with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and touches on that a bit. But uh, in fact, Pierre, it was actually um, a broader-based book at one point and went mm -hmm. all the way back to, we touched on, uh, you know, the fets that uh, David created, uh, you know, after the revolution, but also it had quite, spent a lot of time on, uh, on uh, the communards and, uh, and Corbet. And, and so uh, what happened was uh, the book got a, a little bit carried away with itself while I wrote it. <laughs> uh, and I had sections on Haitian revolution, et cetera. Uh, when I turned it over to the publishers, they said, well, you know, this is interesting, it's but we long. really want a contemporary, yeah, we want a, and we want a book on contemporary art. Okay, so post-war, right? So ultimately, I had to tear those uh, those chapters out, and I was left with the 60s forward, partly because the book had to be short, partly because I had to make it contemporary. The other chapters that are now uh, waiting for another publisher maybe to become mm. another book, which will be really the backstory, let's say. So just to sort of clarify that I agree with you, the question of, let's say, activist art certainly goes back further, you know, than the 60s. No question about that. I try to avoid the concept of historicizing, though, in the book. It's just, I, I don't know how well I do that, but I try to do it by saying that really our, 
unlike other forms of uh, movements or art historical developments, activist art doesn't really have the same profile, say, yeah. compared to cubism or surrealism, where you can kind of say, okay, the manifesto is here, here are certain developments, certain people, you know. There's nothing like that in activist art, really. And you can impose it, but it's not, it's not really what it's about. There's no school. There's no set of like, you know, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. There's no real formal vocabulary. There's really not even any collections except for in archives that maybe will change someday. So it, it's a real kind of misnomer to think about it, I think, as, a, as an art movement. I try to talk about it in terms of what I call a kind of a surplus or phantom archive mm. of possibilities that just can, continues to kind of be repurposed and reanimated through different points in time. And that's, that's sort of the attempt I make to, to sort of get away from like the strictly linear historical notion. Um, so it's a little closer to kind of a genealogy in a Nietzschean sense, you might say, kind of branching networks of things. But I'm very clear that this so-called phantom archive is also full of lots of failures and lots of errors and mistakes and gaps and problems. And so when people today, um, younger, let's say younger artists, get involved in making activist art, they don't even maybe know that they're drawing on this material that's out there. And that's kind of the interesting, for me, part of the hook for me, is like, well, what is it that characterizes the past in this relationship to this work? Boris Groys has called, you know, activist art, you know, a new phenomena. And I both take him to task and at the same time kind of agree with him because I think it is in some ways a, a new phenomena and in other ways it does, as you point out, have a backstory. I'm incredibly frustrated that you've told me now about the, the previous, the prior chapters because I think this would have been um, an even more interesting book where, I could, where you could have taken yourself to task a little bit because one of the crises that we arrive at, and even your framing, certainly in my view, with today's art activism, is that it has a very fraught relationship with aesthetics, a very fraught relationships with its own sense of kind of historical purpose. But maybe we'll get to this. But I do want to ask you for a little bit of detail, because one of the things that happens in the book, even though, as you say, it's not prescriptive historically, you, there are moments in which the figure of the artist weaves in and out of the social. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to start to define and try to understand as we try to take some of this understanding towards today. So how, how do you see phenomena like maybe the minimalism and institutional critique of the 1960s, that is a movement that's concerned with taking the institution of art, so museums, to task, versus the kind of activism that doesn't have anything to do with art that is maybe inspired a little bit by the French workers' movement and by the end of the 60s is exported worldwide, or at least to the Western world. How can we understand the merging of art and the social at those moments? Well, the, what I try to do in the book is sketch out the perspective from the art world, let's say, and, and you're right to mm. point to things like uh, institutional critique, conceptualism, minimalism, and so forth, and how that became politicized uh, or at times became political, shifted back and forth a bit. And then, let's say the outside looking in, a sort of kind of social movement, let's say politic, political aesthetic, protest aesthetic, that has sort of, you know, really doesn't necessarily originate in the art world. It doesn't originate in the art world. Let's say 
and it has uh, roots elsewhere in social movements, right? So not quite trying to say like there's these two gigantic forces that are sort of looking at each other and maybe having a kind of, you know, tarantula dance and eventually sort of, you know, <laughs> change places. But that would be one way to think about it yeah. a little. The bigger picture for me, though, is the dance, if there is such a thing happening, is taking place within a framework of ongoing sort of transformation within the capitalist system, which we yeah. all live in, which is just a reality. And this massive sort of spectacle, which, of course, uh, situations, which is where the, be the book begins, and Guy Debord, et cetera, you know, cited. They weren't the first to do it. I, I point out Walter Benjamin certainly talked about the same thing in its, you know, uh, early stages in the 1920s and 30s. But this notion of a kind of aestheticization of everything is really where the sort of book sort of winds up, you might say, saying that we are living in this total aesthetic that has been sort of constructed, moving from just the early years of cinema and you know publishing and the, the spectacle that, as as they called it in the '60s, to now this kind of ultra sort of aestheticized relationship to everything between mm. you know mediated by network, technology, our phones, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you have to also realize that whatever's happening is happening in some kind of actual, and here I will use the word historical framework. Yeah. All right. Well, within that, the question of what the artist stroke, the artist activist stroke, the activist, these are possibly being three different categories which merge and come, you know, they come together and they come apart, as you trace in the book. What it is that those actors are motivated by at different points historically really does matter. I mean, my listeners will, will not be surprised to, to hear that I'm deeply skeptical of some of those motivations. I don't think that you necessarily are, and your trajectory as an activist, an artist, an educator would attest to the fact that you, you don't think that there is enough dirt on, you know, there's not enough kind of compromise involved in art activism to question it so much. But there was a point at which when Bourdieu was writing of his rules of art, he was essentially calling artists propagandists for hire. They will put whatever you want on the banner in the beautiful paint handwriting, because that's what pays the rent. And that's kind of a critique to which I would ha quite happily cling on all the way into the 60s, maybe into the 70s as he writes this. But then I would like that critique to be slightly updated with, as you say, the changing face of capitalism and the reality that happens around it. But that said, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still quite suspicious. So. Wait, you you brought up the question of aesthetics, right? Yeah, and that seems to be one of the things you're you're really kind of concerned with. Um, if in as much as we can ever understand what that word means, okay. And, and I won't. We won't. We don't have to get into the, the oh, well, philosophy of it, yeah. you know. But we know in the Western world, you know, it comes out of you know the the, the Enlightenment, particularly the German Enlightenment, yeah. Schiller, Kant, the idea of a disengaged right relationship to the aesthetic experience. Not even necessarily grounded in art. It just happens to be one aspect yeah. of it, right? But I guess my question would be, um, do you not see this, let's say, interest or infatuation or drive to sort of produce aesthetic experience or to have aesthetic experience as being something that transcends the commercial or the artist for hire? Oh, it certainly does, but it doesn't mean that that in itself doesn't become appropriated. And tempting as it is to make this an interview with me, and I have a tendency to monologue in my questions as it is, 
I think that we have reached the point, we have way past the point in which that is a good enough get out clause. And you do allude to this in the book. So, But you were asking about what motivates the political Yeah, artist. what motivates And yeah. is it more somehow genuine than, let's say, someone who, so uh, Jeff Koons, let's say, mm. you know, who seems to be kind of the you know, example of like the commercial artist still claiming some kind of aesthetic value, whatever. Okay, I mean, we don't have to get, get down that road. Does um, being involved, let's say, in political critique or even political causes or even trying to actually make political change, which is, I think, something mm -hmm. we need to consider yeah. because it's not just political art. Yeah. You know, I think Guernick is a beautiful example of political art, but it's not activist art. For example, well, arguably the circulation of Guernica after its first presentation yeah. is an activist Or it's suppression, activist, as yeah. we remember Indeed. when the lead up to the Iraqi war and the uh, banner, or the sort of you know weaving of Guernica yeah. events that the UN was was blotted out by the United States for uh, Powell's famous speech, yeah. right? Um, so, so that's a point to make, though that even though political art or even highly aesthetic art, let's say formalist art, let's call mm -hmm. it, which doesn't seem to be political at all, let's see a piece by Donald Judd, under certain circumstances could suddenly become political. In, in certain situations, these things can shift. Mm -hmm. So I don't see these as absolutely fixed categories. But is there a motivation that sort of transcends the commercial or the sort of the compromised with people who are doing political work? And I would guess I would just say that, you know, that's obviously a really, you know, impossible question to answer because you'd have to sort of get inside everybody's head. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, if you go back to the very origins of our concept of art, which let's say comes out of that 19th century era, you know, Saint-Simon and his whole idea of like the artist should work with the engineer, the industrialist to transform the world, right? Some kind of new form of socialism. First attempted in Algeria, as a matter of fact, which will be in the next book, um, <laughs> you know, and obviously a complete failure because it was completely chauvinist and still, you know, uh, you know, very Western. But the point being the idea the artist is somehow given this task and I bring this up with my students all the time. Like, why is it that artists feel that somehow they're uniquely charged with making massive statements about reality, about changing reality? If you were a group of doctors or lawyers mm. or even journalists, you know, you're not ever expected to sort of put your own discipline through the ringer and demand the world change because this is what you are, right? Well, that, that statement kind of went out of the window, unfortunately, about three or four years ago. With what? Every well, everything is activist now. You know, doctors well, are activists now. I think we, it's different. See that, a I doctor will that. be an activist by, you know, let's say going on a picket line or a journalist. Artists do it through their practice. And that's not the same as in other fields. Sure. But then I do want to, I do want to ask you for the, for the answer. <laughs> I do want to ask you then that, that question, because I think that lies at the very core of the motivation, the question of motivation. And I mean, there are other ways ways into it, which I want us to get into in a moment, but why is it, and as an, for you as an educator, this must be incredibly important. Why is it that you think that these bunches of people, 20, 10,000 of them every year, not necessarily just under your tutelage, but you know, tens of thousands of artists every day are trained with the conviction that they should be there to change the world and and to change the world in kind of quite uniform ways. I mean, the art school produces quite uniform politics. Right. Well, well, let's separate that because, you know, the problem of art schools is another whole thing mm. and what the ideology is. But the very motivation, as you point out, 
which I think we're, we're both sort of actually having the same, you know, concern here mm. is really sort of fascinating. I find it almost, so, you know, from a sociological point yeah. of view, it's like, how did that happen? How does, how does it, the artist suddenly gets this special task of stepping out of, seemingly stepping out of, you know, the flow of reality in order to critique it in this particular way, right? And this is what I think haunts uh, the whole notion of activist art. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm trying to sort of get at with the book a bit is like, and I use the Derridian term, Jacques Derrida's term, hauntology. Mm. But there is something that is haunting the activist artist today, even if they think they're just inventing something for the first time, or they're just doing like propaganda for a cause or whatever it is, there still is that question, which the book begins with a quote by Martha Rosler is the idea of having some sort of historical agency. And I think this is really gets down to the nub of it for me. That just seems to be sort of woven into our idea of art, not just contemporary art, I would say, but art at least since, say, the early modernist period for reasons that I, 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 we could get into and I probably would only be able to make very mm. sort of sketchy, sort of, you know, it's not really my area. But I think that sense that there is something at stake, right, that's different than going to the to the cubicle and working every day or whatever it is, right? There's something at stake. And so I think that hauntingness is what interests me quite a bit. And reminding activist artists, let's say today, that that is still there, right? So that's why I yeah. start with the situations for different reasons, which is because they had a total critique. You know, they didn't just believe in like, okay, you make some sort of interesting art here, you do some change there or whatever. You need to transform the whole society. You, know, you need to do torn, as they said, you know, like turn it upside down, you know, use it to, against itself, whatever you want to say. That concept has actually sort of fallen by the wayside. Nobody believes in the idea of total, let's say, revolutionary change. No. Right? That's, that just seems like some kind of romantic myth or dangerous myth even, right? Uh, at least, especially since the fall of the, the socialist, the real socialist world. Or the, and so, you know, you had something called tactical media emerge in, in, in the wake of the Cold War. And this was something that people believed that yet art could kind of move in, use the tools that had been developed by capitalism vis-a-vis -vis this kind of spectacle, make some changes, do some very positive things, but then we'd have to retreat and move somewhere else and do it again. The art of the yes men, you might know the work yep, of the yes men, would be a perfect example. They're constantly changing their identities, they're constantly changing the way they strategize what they're doing. Um, that became sort of the model for a while of like what um, art should be. And it was a kind of neo-situationist approach, mm -hmm. except for one thing. The situations didn't believe necessarily just in this kind of hit and run uh, kind of hijinks. They really believed in complete radical change, at least at one point, maybe when they after 68, that, that sort of fades away for all kinds of reasons. So to me, that's part of what haunts this whole trajectory is that question of real change, right? Real liberatory change on a kind of grand scale that I think is what we're talking about to some degree when we talk about what it is that gets under the skin of artists and what they're somehow taught to believe in art school is that you're doing more than just making an object for the wall. You know, there is something else going on here that has to do with real liberation, emancipation, a shift in perspective, and so on and so forth. Well, of course, there was a possibility that that failed, and you do leave that open in the book. But maybe to rephrase the question of motivation, which I think you have addressed quite, quite, quite beautifully now, 
as we've moved away from the idea that, that a total revolution, the 19th, May 1968, could put an end to all suffering and we can see a completely different, different system, we have observed, from art's perspective, a retrenchment from these kind of grand gestures, even your maybe naive but well-meaning and, for all I know, reasonably effective attempts to make the third world happier through, act through activism in Manhattan. We have moved into the types of artistic activism that create maybe kind of a new canon of institutional critique, where artists are drawn to critique the art world more than anything else. And that, to me, illustrates a couple of things. One, it's the fact that capitalism, as you already acknowledged, is pretty good at changing shape and actually absorbing critiques. This is something that, that Mark Fisher, who I, I remember you citing in a lecture, maybe he's even in the book, if I... If I, if I even Guy Debord said the same. Exactly. Capitalism will, will take your critique and make itself stronger by learning what it is that you've covered. So maybe this is why we have to move from the whole world to the third world to the Guggenheim, because the space in which activism, the space in which political change can be achieved or even nodded at, is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. That's, that's one. And it would be very unfair to ask, really, why artists are not capable of transcending that. Fair enough. Like the world is the world is tough. You can't outsmart capitalism. And that would lead me to wonder whether artists are our best bet if we were looking for a revolution or evolution. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. The second question is to do with the sociological view of artists and artists as activists in this kind of mass that you describe as, the, as dark matter of the art world, the 99% of artists who don't necessarily have frontline um, you know, they're not the Tate, they're not the Gagosian, they're not making the big bucks or even the headlines, but they're producing you know, as critics, as, as interviewers, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. But the question underneath there is, at what point does um, their activism, do their political desires become synonymous with their needs as a political class? So there's this kind of doubling down of, of politics in which both capitalism is less and less interested in, in ha having a window open for any demand for change. And also artists are less and less incentivized to care about anything other than themselves. And that, to a great extent, mirrors the crisis of politics in general. That's the fact why, say, the Democratic Party can only really talk about the college-educated PMC as opposed to address the working class. Maybe that's taking us too far. Let's scrap that, but let, let, let's try to answer the, the idea well, that, that artists yeah. both... They're a professional class. And even if they're dark matter, so to speak, you know, they're still part of the professional class yeah. to some degree, right? Whether And uh, their tastes, their interests are aligned with that mm. class, right? Well, let me, let me go back. And so I gave you the sort of more... Um, uplifting metaphysical version of why <laughs> artists might be, you know, motivated to think they can change the world. And, mm. you know, it is, it, we, we could have played some nice, you know, music in the background, maybe. Oh, joy. It's all possible in post. Yeah. yeah. You can, you can send Good. your Spotify I'll send playlist. you what I think. Maybe Arnold Schoenberg would be better. But, um, 
what let's 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 take this from a different a little colder angle and say there's also something else that happened and and, and we talked about the spectacle already um we realized that you know culture let's let's use that term mm -hmm. um in general starts to become a much more powerful part of politics really in the post-war period right i mean you have elements of it certainly with the frankfurt school yeah. um you have gramsci very significantly raymond williams these people all started to point, even Roland Bart, to mass culture as having this kind of political potential, right? But it really begins to sort of take off, let's say, in the post-war period as consumerism expands. And it's so powerful that the, you know, wonderful counterculture of the 1960s is almost immediately gobbled up to sell products. So before it even has a chance to sort of be a counterculture in most cases, let's say in the West, because in some places it was really a much more you know, serious situation, let's say in Argentina, which I talk about in the second mm -hmm. chapter of the book, where you know, youth culture was really repressed by the regime. But in our worlds of Europe, US, uh, culture starts to become something that capitalism realizes it can really sort of use for all kinds of reasons. I mean, this is not like, oh, we're in a room, you know, star chamber, let's, oh, wait, we can do this. But nevertheless, it's clear that culture becomes not just something that sells, but it also changes the way people behave. And so the spectacle, if you want to call it, is now morphing into this kind of mass consumer culture. And we begin to feel, all of us, in our bones, that somehow culture is where politics resides. Right? Yeah. And this is, seems very powerful. Um, the Cultural Revolution in China, I mean, you could link it, right? And certainly its effect on, on the West, 68, you know, Mao Zedong was, was a very significant figure for a lot of uh, leftists in, in the 60s in the US too. The idea that cultural revolution was part of a political revolution, whatever radicality that had, it feels today like that's just about what you're saying absolutely being linked to consumption of a certain kind of lifestyle, which could include being a political activist for sure, you know? Yeah. And so culture, well, politics, let's call it cultural politics, has really come to replace, let's say, older versions of politics where, the, and you kind of put your finger on it, this question of, say, recognizing a class, uh, recognizing, let's say, labor as the sort of engine of capitalism and therefore the very thing that maybe could sort of mm -hmm. change it or manipulate has been really replaced by a culture uh, that is involved in all kinds of things from identity politics to basically, you know, what kind of ice cream do you like, you know, or what are you going to, what kind of sneakers are you wearing? Uh, sort of fascinating to see how sneakers have morphed into this kind of, you know, cultural phenomenon. I, I still can't get over that. You're so, wearing quite snazzy shoes politics. yourself. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah well, uh, I, I like I like an open shoe, but I figured it's going to rain, so I had to. So cultural <laughs> politics has now dominated us, and as you say, in the the echelons of art, this is a kind of professional class cultural politics, which feels often that it can make statements about serious political concerns, third world mm -hmm. issues. So I'm using the old term third world, but you know, decolonial yeah. issues. Uh, it could do boycotts and all this. It feel it has some agency in that in that realm, and I'm not going to say there's absolutely no agency because I don't believe that's true. We could talk about Document mm. 15, for example. Sure. But the idea, though, that your politics are sort of restricted to the area of culture because that is what politics is, I think, is a big problem. 
It's mm-hmm. a really big problem. And that's something I think the left, if you want to put it in those terms, has completely failed at. You know, it has completely failed to sort of challenge that idea. And I think it will begin to challenge that idea if it's going to survive at this point. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that takes us to an incredibly interesting moment because in as much as the politics of art activism is forever assumed to be the politics of the left, we've already noted the fact that there's an ideology. It's assumed, but it's not necessarily true. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But, you know, as you, you were describing the, the relationship between culture and politics, you know, one of the recent articulations of that relationship comes from Andrew Breitbart, who says that politics is downstream from culture. And Steve Bannon. I mean, I've noted as I was reading the book, I was kind of waiting for you to give an account, account exactly of Steve Bannon. And it's mildly a preoccupation of mine because I've written about Jonas Stahl and his studies yeah. of of Steve Steve Bannon and kind of finding it a little bit lacking to to see like why why are we not looking to the other side and I'm wondering what it is that makes in theory because their success is yet to be seen in the long run but what makes it the right-wing culture activists so much more successful with the handling of culture or at least the demarcation between culture and politics to a certain extent, maybe it is the fact that they're not beholden to their institutions. And forgive me if I'm mixing different ideas, but you've already talked about the paradox that your activist activities with PAD um, ended up in the MoMA archive. And this is not trivial. The fact that institutions, which are representations of all the problems of the Democratic Party in the US, they are the problems, they are the institution of neoliberalism, which as much as they can support leftist progressive politics in writing, they do have to reproduce the opposite by their very operation. You're absolutely right. And, and the, you know, the far right can appear to be quite insurgent at this point. They can appear to be sort of breaking, I mean, well, let's face it, Trump was like basically a, a person who hacked the Republican Party in order to destroy it and recreate it around his own sort of idea what, you know, politics should be or whatever it is that he's doing. Um, so you're absolutely right. I mean, they, it seems insurgent in a way that the left ones seem surgeon. So what do, we, what do we learn from that? What would we want to learn from that if we wanted to give the left some kind of new material, new hope? Well, I precisely, I would, as I said before, I think we have to stop counting on culture to be the, the substitute for politics. Okay, well then the other question is, what is the point of art in all of this? If art has a point, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah, but what, is, what is art's role? Why are we, why are you and I talking here under the aegis right. of, of a book? Now we're coming back to the beginning question, which is like, why is it that art feels it has a point, right? I mean, <laughs> why does it, why does it, surely we have to know, be asking that question why over do, and over again. Why do young people come and, and, yeah. and in the United States, you know, not in my school, fortunately, but in some schools can go in debt, Seventy, eighty thousand dollars in order to get a master's mm. fine art degree, right? There's a point that there's something there. There's something that feels it has to be sort of like addressed, right? I think that is a very valid question to to challenge at this point. Yeah. Mm. Do you want to challenge it, or should we? Should we? Should, I have, should we? Should we? <laughs> not just in this book, yeah. but in other books. In fact, in Dark Matter, the, you alluded to, which, which is a book from 2010 by Pluto Press, there is a um, there is a section of one chapter where I talk about the far right and its culture. Uh, the militia movement in the mm-hmm. U.S. and make the point that, uh, and this is something people often overlook when they use the concept of dark matter. Many people cite it, but I was also talking about uh, some of the most you know despicable kinds of politics that's that's available. That is also a kind of dark matter. Yeah. We shouldn't be thinking it's simply like oh you know the noble activist artist on the fringes. You know, 
this was a book written before the Occupy movement, movement of squares, all that. But it also, unfortunately, seems that the that Steve Bannon's and the Breitbart's and the far right have actually sort of mobilized a certain kind of dark matter since then, anti-neoliberal, right, anti-globalist, yeah. or at least on the surface, it's anti, in a way that the left has just completely failed. Yeah, so I'm 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 thinking about how much how much more political we should make this conversation because I think the the questions of the left and right in contemporary art and political contemporary art are incredibly important and they don't get enough of an airing. They do a little bit in your book, but I, it's not, not really an accusation, but I would welcome volumes like yours being written from the other side almost. Well, unfortunately, I can't, can't take you up with that because I'm, you know, the high priest of the uh, activist <laughs> art left, but uh, if I could find a counterpart, maybe. You know. um, I actually really did want to write a whole book about, so it was the Tea Party that sort of got mm -hmm. me interested at first, you know, like, they also have like a whole aesthetic, you know, like, what yeah. is that about? So it's it's been something I've been um, collecting information on, but I haven't really put it to the, you know, put it into writing. But I don't really think that's the job that I that I need to do right now, or you know, it's not what I know well. So it would be a, it would be an interesting adventure to go there. Uh, maybe maybe one that I would be you know like you know, looking into the into the uh, void and you know as Nietzsche said you know be careful, <laughs> you stare too long. You, but I think I think you, you know I think you're you're bringing up some very important points with your with your whole approach to what you're doing that I think need to be these challenges have to be put to the assumptions we just assume we're on the left and therefore we're good and we're doing the right thing and we're supporting the right causes and um, no I think it's really much more complicated than that you know well, let, let's think about I'm, I'm going to, to go back to this 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 question of art's role in the politics we, even though I, I, I admit that I, I agree with you it's mildly bogus but to use use someone else's someone else's bogus formulation, you you were involved and you cite in the book Stephen Wright, Stephen Wright who who has this thesis of art and politics being one to one, or the art being life, art and life, art and life. And, and one of the ways in which that question kept on coming to me as I was reading the book is essentially trying to find the difference between art activism, activism done by artists, and political activism. It sort of feels like I've already said exactly the thing earlier on. Maybe the fact that the circularity of it all is, is kind of inescapable, is indicative of both the crisis and the strength with what, what it is that the whole discipline is trying to do. Precisely that problem is why I pointed to the larger framing of the, where capitalism mm. has put us at this point, right? This kind of highly aestheticized, networked culture that we live in, consumer culture. My point at the very end of the book really is to say, yes, um, it's interesting that a lot of fields that would not be considered related to art or even cultural studies, right, like political fields, mm. political science, global studies, are beginning to talk about um, aesthetics, yeah. right, uh, in terms of like protest movements or people's movements or migra migratory patterns. Of, uh, they're talking about an aesthetics of this. And I, I, you can't help but think, well, that could only be possible in a world in which everything has already now become highly aestheticized. And so the question of whether there's a line between real activism and art activism is probably irrelevant. There probably is, and there's probably not really a meaningful line between the two of those things. That is an indictment. That is a, that is a problem, I think. It's an indictment of uh, the failure of art? Well, all of, all of us, I think. So there's one way- Because what would art be doing if it wasn't 
necessarily one-to-one -one with reality. Yeah, what would we be doing if we hadn't gone to art school is, is one of the questions. Well, but that's I have... question. <laughs> I think I would have been a postal worker, right? I often tell my students, you know, I, I took the postal test in the U.S. where you, uh, you know, you basically are a letter carrier. There's a test. Oh, yeah, yeah. You have to, you know, you have to pass a basic test to be able to, you know, put letters. Oh, okay, fine. Work. That kind of, and, you know, I wonder whether it was an ideological test. No, 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 okay. no. no. And when, you know, I realized, like, I did this when I was very young, but, you know, I got it passed, of course, and, and I realized, like, by now I would have been retired probably 10 years with a wonderful pension, yeah. right? Um, so yeah, I got the wrong brochure. I mean, that, that, that's a little bit sad because of what, what I would have liked you to have come up with is that you became an artist because you failed the postal test, you know, in a, in a sense that Sorry. artists and art no, education no. are all, you know, you know, some kind of fail, no. failed no, I others. Guess, I guess that the, I failed, hmm. what I failed was try, being a scientist, which is what I wanted to be initially. So, you no, know, I'm going to crash you. I have a master's degree in physics, which is what I did before, before yeah. I went to art school. Yeah, yeah. So this, this is possibly why. Well, I'd like to fact check every 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 and you, every. You can balance statement. your checkbook, and yeah. I can't. That's probably now on on the topic of kind of doing the the, the inventory and balance. Maybe it's a question I should have should have led led with, which is: Does art activism work? And I'll phrase it a little bit as a with with a metaphor of politics proper and political activism proper. I'm not going to be able to remember who I got this this account from. But the idea in American politics, and you should know this because every time you have a you have an election, essentially all that happens is that tons of money is being raised from from both the donor class and from you know from grandmothers sending in the five dollar checks to to the Trump campaign. Tons of money are being moved from from these people to PR agencies and advertising and you know media essentially. So unlike in the UK, US politics is this kind of orgy of activity, which is big because every time one side develops slightly more elaborate political campaigning, the other one has to counter it. And of course, they both have access to exactly the same effective effective media, effective solution. This, this aesthetic sphere that yeah, I was talking yeah. about. Yeah. So they explode, 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 which have more and more and more. And as you say, everything is aesthetics. And alongside that, you have people who volunteer to go and hit the phones at the local campaign center to go and, you know, install and you know, build the stage and stand at the back of whatever televised address by the candidate is. So we have this tons of activity, which frankly are an economy in and of themselves. You know, like the contribution to GDP of political campaigning is not, is not trivial. But if you are going to ask and measure the effects of any single one of these activities, as in what sway in the voting intentions do we have from one phone call made by, by a volunteer, from one marginal dollar being spent on her time? The answer is, well, obviously zero. Yet, we believe in the system where the almost endless multiplication of zeros is what we understand as democracy. Spooky action at a distance. Yeah. How is that any different from this? Well, I'm glad you didn't start with that question because that's the question almost everybody starts with. <laughs> because the, the, the assumption is, well, if it's art activism, then it, therefore it must be able to do what it says it does. I mean, that must mm. be the criteria by which you judge whether it's good art or not, I guess, or good art activism or not. I find it very problematic. I mean, you don't walk up to looking at a Jackson Pollock and go, well, you know, you, you say, does it work maybe like in that kind of artistic sense of like the 1960s? It really works, you know. But I mean, it doesn't do a job. Dealers would probably right? be able to answer that well, question. Well, the dealer, yeah. in the affirmative. I, let's stay in the realm of like sort of the yeah. aesthetic 
And you, you, the art activism seems to have to prove itself by being effective, uh, not other kinds of art, right? It, it, so it's no longer judged in any kind of criteria by as an artistic practice, really, in the sense that we're talking about, mm -hmm. right? And certainly, it isn't really a commercial venture at this point, although maybe mm -hmm. it's beginning to sort of shift in that direction. I mean, it is beginning to shift a little bit. So I guess, you know, I'm glad you didn't start with that question, because I think it sort of flattens the conversation quite a bit to sort of look at things purely in terms of their instrumentality. Yeah. And I'm not going to like cling to, you know, the, the classic, you know, Kantian idea, well, you know, art has to be disengaged and non-utilitarian. I think that's, you know, got lots of problems with it as well. But I do think that we can talk about activist art, we could talk about it being successful if it really does invoke this kind of haunting, this hauntology mm. uh, that we were talking about before of what it is, what it would mean to really have this kind of full emancipation or to really sort of change the system. That would be the closest I think you could get to actually saying activist art succeeds. And we both know how difficult that is. Yeah. Now, as to the question of a lot of zeros adding up to something, some sort of mysterious quantum effect, you know, I do know people who believe, yeah, that it's an aggregate question, right? You, you, you do these little tactical maneuvers, many, many, many tactical maneuvers, but, and it slowly moves things in a certain direction. And I think, you know, there, there's probably some truth to that, not completely sort of uh, going to dismiss that. <clears throat> but I go back to the same point that I made before, is that you really then sort of vacate the idea that you can bring about a real transformation, right? Mm -hmm. Which is where I go back to sort of the situation is however deluded they may have been thinking that they could really subvert capitalism through their artistic practice, right? That seems to me the thing that has to keep haunting us, right? Why, why did they think that? What, was there something to that? They were at inside the spectacle, really. I mean, on the edge of it as artists, but nevertheless, they understood how it worked. Filmmakers, artists, whatever, you're all contributing, right? Is that the means of production that has to be grasped and changed? If so, it has to be done in the name of something bigger than art, as you pointed out earlier, not just trying to make art critique art. That's going to get us nowhere. Yeah, I think that's, that's a poignant moment. There's definitely been kind of a resurgence in a conversation recently about artists demanding the impossible and maybe the frustration there to, to a casual observer or maybe even someone who's agonized this as much as I have is that it's very, very unclear where these demands might take us. But one of my critiques of the kind of standard approach to art activism or political art is that one has to, apart from the fact asking who it serves, is also the question of who it's who's paying for it. So in as much as I was able to point to the donor class driving the great political campaigning spend, you know, the fact that in many senses the same capital that today's institutional critique protests is paying for these protests. You know, the art activism, and I would disagree with you a little bit, like it it has become commodified already. I in my kind of post-2008 attempts to run a gallery that was politically inclined, was one of the people who was kind of trying to pioneer a little bit an alternative in which the market and the political could meet each other and rub off against each other. And But I think the question of why it is that endless NGOs are willing to pay for various forms of activism, including in this year's editions of Documenta, 
you know, whether, whether this kind well, of neutralization yeah. of, of, of the whole. But they're not. <laughs> I mean, I think this is the interesting thing that we, you know, we've documented um, is, yeah, they, they paid for it and then they were really sorry they did. And well, now, and I mean, now the, they're the not. Champagne is drunk either way. Yeah, well, document is never going to be the same. Um, oh, I hope so, but no, I don't how likely so. is that? that? Well, you probably heard the Bundestag has decided to take over the reins of uh, control to make sure that kind of activity that went on that they just, you know, <laughs> thought so, so uh, you know, was so despicable, it will never, will never take place, which, you know, I granted there were, the images were disgusting, the anti-Semitic images, okay, but if you look at it as a whole, it seems that the real critique is you gave the keys to the car to brown people from the south and they went for a joyride and then you said, oh, why did we do that, right? And what did you expect? They're basically giving you the finger and they did it very successfully. And now you're going to like tear apart the whole documentary from now on because mm. hoo-hoo, you know, you got just exactly what you asked for. You, you do allude in a book to some of the kind of authoritarian moments where I think your example is the Serbian Museum in which you lament the fact that a right-wing government or a conservative government wants its state institutions to align with its politics, which, I mean, shouldn't really be a surprise to anyone who understands how, how money It's a little more state, nuanced, though, yeah. dear, because of course, they, of course, they, but... they want it to be aligned with the state, but they also recognize, it, and just as you've been saying, how powerful the sort of commercial art world is, the, you know, the international art world, let's call it that. So it's, it's a kind of interesting dance that some of these far-right, like in Hungary and Serbia, they don't want to completely kill the goose either. Yeah, well, but that, that maybe brings us to a point where Andrew Breitbart and Steve Bannon understand that culture isn't yet there to be given up on, that there, there is something they want to preserve. And as you say, in the case of Documenta, maybe that was an extreme example of like, look, the the other side of the world came and, and took over. But but a lot of liberal institutions, including, I would imagine, the, the kind of university spheres with which you operate, are raising eyebrows of some of the funders because you know, they've been bastions of liberalism and the kind of politics that a lot of the time those who would seek to control it, those who have their names on, on the buildings, never really aligned with. So, so I think we, we are this kind of interesting moment where... Yeah, I well, think those institutions really are in, yeah. in great tension. No, I think I think this this uh, you know I think you put it beautifully. And uh, is this uh, Breitbart versus sort of documented fifteen? You know, <laughs> this kind of moment where I I watch that. I know, definitely watch yeah, that. Yeah. I mean, if, if Tucker can can mediate that conversation, yeah. I would quite happily watch. Yeah. yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think we're seeing uh, this this thing this cultural politics mm. as as I talked about. And it's not my term. It's a term. Mm. You know, it's been around for a long time coming to a sort of particular kind of turning point, inflection point, as people like to say these days. And I think we're going to yeah, find out what that's about very soon. Oh, well, okay. I hope, hope we're both around to find out. We're not, <laughs> we're not on the losing side, whatever our sides are. <laughs> yeah, well. Thanks, Greg. That's okay. A, it's a good moment to maybe end it. <laughs> oh, thank you, Pierre. <laughs> the best. The Art of Activism and the Activism of Art by Gregor Chalette is published by Lund Humphreys. I'm Pierre Delancer and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thanks for listening and join us next time.